0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation.
1: The perspective has to be the status quo has to change. I mean, if somebody says, oh, we're protecting consumers by preserving the status quo, my reaction is, I mean, stepping away from the facts of any particular case. No, the the status quo, we've got to be doing better than the status quo. We need more legal aid lawyers. We need more other resources, whether they be uh, legal navigators who are in the courts that can help people who happen to be in court without a lawyer, whether they be paralegals who are, as is the case in Arizona, who have been licensed to help people in particular sorts of cases. These are all, these all have to be on the table. Because when 90% of the people aren't being served, uh, that is not an acceptable status quo.
0: Hello, and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Teche. Well, we've all made it to the end of 2021. And on this episode, we're going to take a look back on the year that was. Specifically, we're going to be talking about how this year shaped the continued adoption of new justice technologies and legal regulatory reform. To accomplish this, I'm joined by three guests. Zach D. Miola is the Director of Legal Education and the Legal Profession at the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System, or IELTS, at the University of Denver. Bob Ambrosi is a lawyer and journalist who operates the Law Sites blog, a legal technology publication. And Ron Flagg is the President of the Legal Services Corporation and, perhaps more importantly, a fellow co-host here at Talk Justice. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Bob, I wanted to start with you. You write a lot about technology and and regulatory reform. And I'm curious, looking back on this year, what is the biggest change that you saw that you didn't expect? The biggest change that I didn't expect is is probably
2: to state the obvious, which is I didn't expect that as we were coming to the end of 2021, we would still be sitting here in the grips of this global pandemic. And I, I think what's... I hate to start this podcast off as being a little bit cynical, but I think what's happened is it's caused a bit of inertia in the legal profession. You know, 2020, for for all the horrible stuff that happened in 2020, everybody talked about that silver lining of, of the way that it accelerated adoption of technology, uh, caused law firms and legal services organizations and courts to uh, really look at how they were delivering their services and think about that. Uh, but I feel like as we come to the end of 2021, we're, we're kind of stuck in this limbo of not quite knowing which way to go and how to make the most of the lessons we learned in 2020. I think there continues to be a lot of good coming out of it. I, I think we're, we're probably going to talk at some point in the show about the Pew report that just came out on how the courts responded to the technology, which I think found a lot of good news and also some not so good news in that in that report as well. But you know, as we're coming toward the end of the year, I'm kind of I I just feel like law firms, courts, legal services organizations are all a little bit wrestling with what do we do now? Where do we go next? And, and that troubles me a little bit.
0: Zach, to, to build on what Bob's saying here, is that what you're feeling as well, looking at regulatory reform here at the end of 2021, are we feeling stuck and not knowing where to go because of unknowingness that the pandemic has created, or are you seeing something else? So
3: that's one of the things that surprised me about 2021, is that we had more states jump in, new states, into actual recommendations for, for serious reform so we had more entrance in the, over the summer of 2021. Um, we've had more pushback too. So, in in my view, I think we have made a lot of progress in 2021 with regulatory reform. The conversation, the scope and depth of it, has really widened and deepened. We pulled more stakeholders into it, and I think perhaps you know that's the benefit of this this prolonged um, pandemic, or maybe even some of the the inertia that Bob's referring to, is that uh, that people are paying closer attention to the reform issues and maybe looking at it a little differently than they would have without the current circumstances in place.
0: From your perspective, is that because the pandemic has required all these emergency orders and and new approaches, and and that's coming into tension with these more traditional analog uh, rules that have been controlling the legal profession?
3: So yes, and I think inherent in that is the idea that regulatory reform prior to the pandemic was going to be disruptive. The pandemic put us all in an environment of disruption. And I don't think that disruption is necessarily normalized, but the possibility of change is far less, it's far less distant. It's a little closer to everyone. And so the vision of regulatory reform isn't so much a pie in the sky, it's brought a little closer to the idea of practical, pragmatic, and necessary solutions, given all the other changes that courts have been exploring, that legal service providers have been exploring and and the different ways that they have. So
0: that's the way I view it. Ron, to bring you into the conversation, one of the big changes at the national level that happened this year that you were involved with was, of course, the Biden administration brought back the Office of Access to Justice at the Department of Justice, and the White House Interagency Roundtable has some new life breathed into it as well. Having been a part of this and and looking back on the year, I'm, I'm curious, what type of impact have these two changes had on not only this issue at the national level, but but more importantly, probably at the state and local level?
1: So I think generally, there are three key strategies to improve uh, access to justice in America. One, greatly Im- increasing attention to the issue. Two, greatly increasing the funding and resources devoted to civil justice. And three, leveraging by means of innovation, both in our courts and our legal aid service delivery models, leveraging those scarce human and financial resources. And I think the reestablishment of the DOJ access to justice office and the reinvigoration of the White House legal aid interagency roundtable can advance all three of those strategies. These steps have already drawn more attention to civil justice both inside and outside the government. In just the last week or so, the roundtable convened a meeting, that drew leaders throughout the executive branch to discuss strategies for advancing civil justice. The leaders included the Attorney General, the White House Counsel, the Director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and other leaders from uh, other executive branch departments. And we discussed at that meeting the need to increase funding for civil legal aid, both by increasing LSC's annual appropriation which obviously Congress has a lot to say about as well, but also by identifying other federal funding streams that should be used as sources of civil legal aid funding to help ensure that programs enacted by Congress and carried out by the executive branch, in fact, help the people who were the intended beneficiaries. A 2021 example of that has been the use of American Rescue Plan funding and emergency rental assistance funding to support the creation of right-to-counsel programs in eviction cases, and you know, I think it's made a, a, a big difference to uh, tens of thousands of people who hopefully will be staying in their homes at the end of the year rather than being evicted. We also discussed the need to develop new collaborations and partnerships to address civil legal issues, again, focusing on evictions during 2021. We've seen the White House and the Departments of Justice and. Housing and Urban Development and the Treasury Department, working with state and local leaders, both government leaders, community leaders, legal aid leaders, local courts, to develop strategies to help keep people in their homes and to fund programs that would do that. And we've seen a re-emphasis on innovative programs and service delivery models, such as medical legal partnerships. And again, the federal government is in a great position, organizations like the VA, to fund those sorts of initiatives.
0: To stay with you for a second and pulling on that third point that you made that the leveraging innovation, of course, LSC's technology initiative grants just went out. The, the memo went out on, on what's getting funded. I'm curious, you know, Bob at the top of the show was talking about how there was all of this excitement around the technology adoption last year, and now we're a little bit more stuck in limbo this year. I'm curious what you're seeing, what's getting funded, what applications are coming in? Are we seeing new approaches by legal aid in their use of technology on account of the pandemic? What do we see? What are we learning from TIG grants, both what's being applied for and what's being awarded?
1: Well, they really fall in a, a few different buckets and that's always the case even before the pandemic. What I think we've seen in the pandemic and this continued in 2021, was really the fruit of the technology work from the past 10 years prior to the pandemic coming into flower. It really saved the day. And saying save the day, I don't mean to suggest that you know mission accomplished, the problems have been solved, but the surges in unmet legal needs that we've seen during the pandemic, the response to them would have been much worse, both within the judiciary and within uh, civil legal aid, if we hadn't over the prior 10, 15, 20 years, been coming up with ways of communicating with people who we weren't in the same room with, ways of doing outreach remotely, ways of doing intake electronically and not just face-to-face. So I, I, you know, I think that's continued.
0: Bob, I, I want to pull on that a little bit because a lot of this stuff, when we're looking at courts or, or we're looking at how legal aid reacted in, in 2020, everything was an emergency measure, right? Either literally because the court had to pass a, a, an emergency rule change or just because we were in fact in an emergency. Now that we're almost two years into this and it looks like it's going to last a bit longer, do we have any sense yet uh, when it comes to technology adoption, whether it's in courts or legal aid, of what's going to remain an emergency measure or, or what's going to stick? Well, I guess that's part
2: of the reason I, I, I have this feeling that we are betwixt and between. I don't, I don't mean to be overly cynical. I've just been kind of for my own purposes, been thinking a lot about this past year. And I totally agree with with what Ron was just saying that had it not been for the groundwork that was laid before the pandemic, we would never have been able to respond as effectively when the pandemic hit. And, you know, the, the really possibly good news in 2020 was how quickly we were able to adapt to this New normal, as everybody's been calling it, you know. Again, I mentioned earlier that Pew study where they talked about the fact that courts that had never held a video trial before were suddenly conducting hundreds of video trials routinely, with with really hardly a glitch. It all went pretty well. But I guess I guess what I feel now is that when you look at courts, when you look at legislative bodies, when you look at law firms, when you look at legal organizations, we're all quite not sure do we go hybrid? Do we bring people back into the office? What's the right way to deliver services now? I think hybrid is here to stay. And I think that's a good thing across all forms of legal services delivery. I guess I feel like we're in this transition stage where we're still trying to figure out what that looks like, what that means, and how we make that work for everybody. I mean, again, going back to that Pew study on the courts, yes, courts rapidly transition to online technology, but one of the major findings of that report was that that served people who were represented by lawyers well, people in businesses, but if you were a pro se litigant in the courts who maybe didn't have ready access to technology or maybe had some language barriers or physical barriers, then you might have been shut out of court processes. And, and even more than that, some courts had and I think still have in place rules that blocked non-lawyers from doing things like electronically filing documents. so if you need to modify a child support order because you know you've just lost your job because of the pandemic you couldn't file the paperwork to do that electronically I was in a way hugely optimistic at the end of 2020 and at the end of 2021 I'm just feeling you know a little bit like 2021 has not seen the kind of progress or or uh, adaption around these new technologies that i really thought we might might be seeing at this point but
1: i think we're also now in a not one size fits all point in the spectrum when the pandemic was at its outset and i don't want to speak in the past since we're going through another spike right now but you know courts had to operate remotely hopefully we're going to get past the pandemic and then the question will be where is technology the answer? Sometimes for unrepresented people, it's going to be the right answer where for a 15-minute appearance in an eviction case or a family law case, rather than having to uh, schlep three kids into the courthouse or uh, leave their job for you know six hours to make a 15-minute appearance, they can uh, hopefully uh, appear, whether self-represented or with a lawyer, remotely. But then that immediately begs the question, do they have the bandwidth literally to do that? Mm -hmm. And so questions become much more complicated and not surprisingly, those answers are not as satisfactory or clear cut as they were when there was really no choice other than to go forward remotely.
0: One of the things that's interesting to me, and Bob, you've mentioned the Pew report a couple of times and we'll put a link in our show notes, but one of the things that jumped out to me about that report was that In these two years, where we have digitized a lot of new services, we've created easier online access to things like virtual hearings. Now, either through Zoom links or even YouTube channels, you can just watch a court hearing anywhere around the country. The peer report and the discussion doesn't really seem to be like within all of this new technology. There's increased data collection and security concerns, and that conversation doesn't seem to be happening in a robust way. But I'm wondering if I'm missing something. Like, are we thinking through the complications that we are creating by digitizing a lot of these services and creating a larger data trail uh, about people's litigation?
2: You know, that's an interesting question. And I don't know that I fully thought through what what the answer to that is. For example, I do do a lot of uh, uh, lobbying work in my law practice, uh, which means I'm often having to testify before the state legislature in a hearing. And it used to be that People who might be interested in knowing what the legislature is doing could kind of wander into that hearing and listen to what was being talked about and wander out when it was over without having to sign in or give their name or anything else. Now, if you want to attend a local government meeting or a legislative hearing, or I guess even a court hearing, uh, in many cases, you're having to sign in and register and give your identification. Is that a bad thing is that a good thing i don't know but it, it's as you say it's a whole new area of data being collected about us as members of the public as citizens that we never had before you know i, I think in some ways all this data collection is is a good thing and i think i mean what zach could probably talk to what's happening in utah and in arizona where you know as we're experimenting with these different forms of delivering legal services in those states they're compiling lots of data on what works and what doesn't work. And that's something we've never really had before uh, or had the benefit of before. So I don't know, I'd love to hear what Zach thinks about that. But you know, I, I think there is maybe some privacy issues here that, as you might suggest, but uh, also ultimately opportunities to, you know, again, understand better what works and what doesn't work in terms of delivering these kinds of services.
3: I have some thoughts on this. Uh, there are privacy concerns, rightly so. But I, I think I'll just weigh in a little more on, on the possibility here. Two things have happened in the last couple of years that have really spurred an ability for the profession and for courts to understand better the outcomes of the choices that they make. Courts in the legal profession famously don't collect data, don't evaluate using data. It's one of the supreme ironies of our profession that we have very little evidence for the way with which we govern ourselves although we require evidence of everyone else to make their case, right? And so two things, the technology being implemented and regulatory reform, and as Bob correctly points out, robust data collection and and soon to be analysis in places like Utah and Arizona, I think it created a bit of a renaissance here, a spark. What we're seeing is one of the greatest growths in our profession for a a role and a space for, for data scientists, for researchers, and for an understanding of what it means to have an evaluation plan, right? To understand what policy objectives are beforehand and let that drive your evaluation plan. In fact, there was a wonderful podcast on this series about about the whole idea of data collection and and why it's important and how it can be uh, used in the legal profession, I love that. And I think that's right. So one of the things that, that particularly with regard to regulatory reform that we've seen over the past year, one of the most exciting things for me about, about 2021 Is that we have 31 legal service providers in the sandbox in utah that could not have existed but for regulatory reform and now we're getting a glimpse because of the data collection that the regulator does in that sandbox of how many people are being served what are the services that they're receiving how many complaints are coming through right in addition to a whole number of other of other data points on these brand new legal service providers this is useful information And so technology reform, these sorts of new data points are fostering and I think creating a fertile field for the understanding of data. So we have something like in Utah right now, the the Law of Laws organization. This is Anna Carpenter and and our own director of research uh, at IELS, Logan Cornett, and a whole variety of other people, Rebecca Sandifer, who are creating a community around this. So we're starting to see standards, application, and then integration in states like Michigan, right? Chief Justice McCormick there really understands the need for data and really understands that that has to be implemented. That priority comes at the beginning of, of a program, not as an afterthought thought in, in the end.
0: And for those that haven't been tracking closely, the, the sandbox model is essentially a white listing started by the Supreme Courts in, in Arizona and Utah that where... New types of legal service providers can apply, uh, and then there is greater oversight, uh, guardrails, and so forth, so that the experimentation can occur where previously it wasn't allowed.
3: Just a quick correction. Arizona, it doesn't have a sandbox model.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Utah. Thanks for that correction. Arizona has been doing different regulatory reform efforts. My, my apologies there. So Zach, I want to start with you and, and then get Bob's thoughts here. Where the Florida bar sued a technology startup called Ticketed, T-I-K-D for unlicensed practice of law. Essentially the way the app worked is that if you got a parking ticket, you could take a photo of it, upload it, and the app would help connect you to a barred attorney in the state uh, to help fight that ticket. Uh, in a 4-3 decision from the Florida Supreme Court, they ruled that this app was essentially practicing law without a license, even though the app itself did not provide uh, much of a legal service at all, certainly no legal advice. This case for me this year, illustrates that ongoing tension between technology and legal regulation what can we learn from this what does this tell the uh, about kind of the state of technology legal regulatory reform in the year 2021
3: yeah great question so so first of all that the ticked opinion ticked or ticket however however you, you prefer it but um the opinion itself is just in a way it's almost a masterpiece because it it covers just about every aspect of the debate we've been having around regulatory reform. And so the, the, the opinion, the, 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 um, the majority with the concurrence say that, look, this is unauthorized practice of law as those regulations are written, and, and it is a problem because of all the potential for harm, right, and it's a problem because the court can't regulate this company because it's not a lawyer. And so how can we possibly protect the the, uh, the public from harm? And of course, the dissent says this isn't the practice of law at all. The court shouldn't regulate these sorts of business practices. And that, in fact, the evidence of service being provided isn't that any consumer was harmed, but in fact, they were benefited, right? So why are we punishing them for creating a, a benefit? So. Uh, To me, that that just sort of, that's the landscape of regulatory reform in a nutshell. And I think from my perspective, what it illustrates is Chief Justice Kennedy got this too, that he was the concurring uh, decision on that 4-3, that basically the rules as written are too broadly interpreted, unauthorized practice of law has an incredible chilling effect, and that it is tone deaf. Rules that exist that way, with the current problems we have today, right? Uh, particularly during the pandemic, and with the technological solutions that can be employed, right? And and what TIC was doing was very low tech in the big scheme of things relative to the technology that that's available, and yet we can't even go there. And so what Chief Justice Kennedy said was, you know, hey, look, it may be that we have to change all of this, but we shouldn't do it through a written opinion. We need to take this through the rule writing process, right? We've got to look at the rules, put it through our committees, really give it careful analysis, get the experts involved. And of course, that's what Florida is doing, right? John Stewart has been arguing for the recommendations of his committee all all during the fall. And there's more to to talk about that. But I think with with that, I would just simply say the opinion should be read by anyone interested in these issues, because in my view, both sides lay out all the the landscape of, of the debate.
0: Ron, from your perspective, you know, at the head of the Legal Services Corporation, when you see cases like this as as an organization that funds more novel technological approaches to these types of issues, of course, you're working with legal aid providers. These are legal service organizations, borrowed attorneys. What do you see when uh, a case like Ticket comes down? What are your thoughts?
1: You know, the whole construct of regulation of the legal profession, in theory, is to protect consumers, protect clients, protect potential clients. And my perspective is informed by the data we see on the justice gap. When the status quo is that close to nine and 10 civil legal problems faced by the poor lead to no assistance or inadequate assistance, that tells me the consuming public is being woefully served. And so whether we're approaching this in a particular case or as folks are doing in, in Utah and uh, Arizona in a much more you know kind of systematic, thoughtful way, the perspective has to be the status quo has to change. I mean, if somebody says, oh, we're protecting consumers by preserving the status quo, my reaction is, I mean, stepping away from the facts of any particular case, no. The the status quo, we've got to be doing better than the status quo. We need more legal aid lawyers. We need more other resources, whether they be uh, legal navigators who are in the courts that can help people who happen to be in court without a lawyer, whether they be paralegals who are, as is the case in Arizona, who have been licensed to help people in particular sorts of cases. These are all, these all have to be on the table because uh, when 90% of the people aren't being served. Uh, That is not an acceptable status quo. You know, I think civil legal aid can be empowered by this as well. If paralegals or, you know, people who are not lawyers can help uh, members of the public with their legal problems uh, or use technology to do that, there's nothing to say that uh, legal aid programs can't employ those paralegals or can't use that technology to to help uh, clients for whom they don't have the the bandwidth to provide a lawyer.
0: Ron, you mentioned at the top of that answer that the... uh you know, the argument for these rules is that they protect the consumer when the consumer is actually getting pushed out of the market, essentially, by the limitations that the regulations create. And I'm reminded, a friend of mine, before he took the legal ethics test uh, to become a lawyer, his legal ethics professor told him that the correct answer on the MPRE, the name of this test, is the one that protects the cartel, uh, the cartel being the bars. And... uh, This whole it's good for the consumer thing is the same thing that Amazon argues, right? It's the same thing that companies that we argue now are monopolies or being argued are monopolies are trying to use to defend their uh, monopolistic hold on their uh, corner of the economy. I'm curious with people like Lena Khan leading the discussion now in DC about monopolization, should state bars or legal regs be concerned at all that there's an antitrust argument coming their way?
1: Well, the monopoly historically has been the legal profession the rules set up an environment in which only uh, people with a certain certification can provide services, and they, in effect, have a monopoly. And the theory is, to prevent, you know, anti-competitive things from happening, the legal profession has an obligation to provide free legal services to people who can't afford them. I mean, that's sort of one standard that's out there, and in many instances, but certainly not all uh, people adhere to that standard. But it's sort of an odd situation where the people who hold the monopoly uh, are regulating themselves, in effect. I mean, you have the state, generally, you have the highest court of the state at the top of the system. But, you know, clearly, the organized bar is often a a strong voice in on issues of what the, the rules should be, so it, it's critical, whatever we're doing, whether we're setting the rules for lawyers, whether we're setting court rules, whether we're trying to decide to what extent uh, we should be using uh, technology in courts or in legal services delivery. We need to listen to the people who we think we're trying to serve. We don't listen to the consumer. I mean, would you open a restaurant without uh, talking to people what kind of food they'd like? I mean, that's essentially how we operate too often in the legal profession.
0: Zach, I'm curious for you to jump in here as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about legal reform. Is there any chance that we're going to see antitrust rules come after bar associations or some of these regs that we're talking about today?
3: of the North Carolina Dental Association case laid the the groundwork for a whole new way to challenge the bars. And in fact, I think the US Supreme Court might have even used uh, the, the bar associations is an example. So if a state's going to delegate enforcement of regulations to an organization that's, that has marked incumbents in it, there are certain requirements that need to be had. That case was, was referred to in the Tick case. It didn't quite last. The argument never really took hold. And we haven't really seen any challenge since then. So the legal framework is there. I suppose some other set of facts, or some other plaintiff, would have to make make use of it. Litigation strategy is is a little bit out of my a little I'm a little far field from that. There's also some First Amendment considerations with regard to unauthorized practice of law. I mean, how can it be that I can't give you advice? I can't just talk to you about a problem that you that you have. So it's out there, but it hasn't really been uh, used yet to to any great effect. I'm not sure that it will be in the future. I, I, I'm more optimistic, really, about. A movement that we're seeing within each state that's really catching hold, I think, because of a lot of the circumstances around where we are, both with the crisis in access to legal services and the and the pandemic and the use of technology and change. I think what we saw over the past year was arguably exponential growth in terms of uh, states getting involved and looking, taking a serious look at uh, alternatives to the to the status quo. You know, exponential growth means from three to nine, but but That's a lot. That's a lot in the context of the last
0: 150 years. As we wrap up, something I want to pull on there that you mentioned is you're excited about the movement that you're seeing, Zach, in your world of regulatory reform and kind of bookending this with where we started with Bob's answer up front is that we're feeling a little stodgy on the tech side of things, not sure where things are going to go. So, Bob, I'm curious. I don't know if this last half hour has convinced you of anything different, but you know, we're at the end of 2021, 2022. Are you feeling optimistic about it? Do you think we remain stuck so long as the pandemic continues this roller coaster? What do you expect for the coming year?
2: Well, I mean, the funny thing is that on this issue of of regulatory reform, I actually am optimistic. And every, everybody else on this panel essentially has, has made, you know, important points about uh, the fact that, you know, one of, one of the problems is, is that we are stuck with a, a set of archaic rules and we have basically the monopolists in charge of regulating the monopoly, but one of the most dramatic things we've seen over the last couple of years with regulatory reform is that the greatest push from, for regulatory reform is coming from the top uh, in, in, in the legal profession from state Supreme Court justices uh, like Bridget McCormick in Timmer in Arizona, Dino Hamonis in, in Utah, who are seeing just how severe the access to justice crisis is and how it just continues to get worse and, and making the point that whatever we're doing just ain't working and something much more dramatic needs to be done. And, and also the, even the ABA, you know, which for, I think for years was seen as the bastion of, of kind of resistance to a lot of this progress any number of people, particularly you know Judy Perry Martinez at the ABI, who just pushed for the need for something to be done to address the crisis that we're facing in this country. And, and I think that's one area where I think everybody is really starting to get it. I mean, I think California just backtracked a little bit on, on some of the progress they've been making uh, on, on regulatory reform. But overall, I, that is one area where I'm really optimistic I had uh, Ann Timmer on on my own podcast uh, early this year, I think, when I asked her, or Utah and Arizona, kind of the dominoes that are going to start a whole bunch of other dominoes falling. And they're not falling as rapidly as I'd like to see them falling. But I think as Zach indicated, other states are are moving into this area and looking at it. And I I think we are going to see some substantial progress in this area over the next couple of years.
0: Ron, I'll give the last uh, word to you. What uh, dominoes do you expect to see fall in in Bob's (laughs) words in in 2022?
1: Well, I'm optimistic because of people like you, Jason, and and Zach and Bob and many others. These issues are getting much more public attention than they ever did before. Uh, Evictions and domestic violence used to be other people's problems. Now everybody sees them. They're on the front page. People understand that there's not enough legal assistance. So, you know, I think one of the dominoes I, I, I hope to see fall is a real step increase in resources devoted to civil legal aid. We've been in the same uh, range in terms of funding uh, for 30 years. And, you know, you get what you pay for. If you, if you don't increase investment for 30 years, you're going to have a 90% justice gap. So I think increases in resources and regulatory reform efforts that are going on in Utah and Arizona. They're already showing results. I think they're gonna continue to show results and I think they will serve as models for other jurisdictions.
0: Well, with whatever dominoes come to fall in 2022, I'm sure we're going to be discussing it here on Talk Justice uh, in the new year. So with that, I'd like to thank Bob, Zach, and Ron for being with us today on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed, check out our show notes. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Tache, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening and happy new year. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.